0: Urban Legends They're usually the stuff of barroom gossip or junior high school sleepovers We bring them up to entertain or titillate one another They are cautionary tales and lessons in safety, morality, and consequences To be invoked when we need to be reminded, in a creepy, fun way That the night is dark and full of terrors And then, in the light of day, we leave them behind and move on with our lives. Usually. But one town has decided to embrace its urban legend and turn it into their main calling card. It's a bold move, considering their urban legend is a giant, moth-like being with glowing red eyes who will eat you if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not my idea of a selling point, but hey, town councils everywhere, you do you. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who bases all of my vacation destinations on what the food is like. So making the main draw of your town a person-sized bug? I mean, but is there any good Mexican or Thai food? But after decades of being dogged by rumors, the people of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, much like the powers that be at the Denver International Airport, figured, if you can't beat them, join them. And they leaned into the legend that has shrouded their town for 40 plus years. There stands an unusual piece of public art gracing a median in the center of town. A shining, winged horror standing at 12 feet with the arms and legs of a person and incredibly chiseled abs. The Mothman himself. But let's go back to the beginning. Late on a Tuesday night on November 15th, 1966, young married couples Linda and Roger Scarberry and Mary and Steve Mallets were out for a drive on a double date in the super romantic area of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, known as the TNT area. If an abandoned World War II weapons dump site isn't your idea of an ideal makeout spot, I'm with you. But the young folks in the area had a different sensibility about what was a turn on and the TNT area was a popular canoodling spot. And why four grown-ass married adults were driving around together in the same area where kids went to swap spit is anyone's guess. Anyway, the couples were driving around the TNT area when they came up over a small rise and their headlights hit some kind of creature in the road. According to Linda's police report filed a few days later,
1: I looked up and saw it go around the corner at the old powerhouse. It didn't run, but wobbled like it couldn't keep its balance. Its wings were spread just a little. We sat there a few seconds, then Roger took off. I kept yelling for him to hurry. We didn't even stop for the curves. We got out on Route 62 and was coming down the road, and that thing was sitting on the second hill when you come into the first bad curves. As soon as our lights hit it, it was gone. It spread its wings a little and went straight up into the air. When we got to the armory, it was flying over our car. We were going between 100 and 105 miles per hour down that straight stretch. And that thing was just gliding back and forth over the back end of a car. As we got there in front of the lights by the resort, it dived at our car and went away. I could hear the wings flapping as if to get more speed as it went up. We were all terrified and kept yelling for Roger to go faster. As we came into that straight stretch by C.C. Lewis's, the thing was over our car again. Then it disappeared as we came into the lights by C.C. C. Lewis's gates. We went on downtown and stopped at Dairyland and tried to decide what to do. We just sat there and looked at each other. I wanted to go to the police, but Steve and Roger kept saying they'd just laugh at us we talked about it a while and Roger and Steve wanted to go back up the road. Mary and I kept trying to talk them out of it. And finally, when we go to CC C. Lewis's gate, they decided they didn't want to go back up. So we turned around. As we were turning, we saw a big dead dog laying along the road. When we were almost turned around, this thing jumped and leaped over our car and went through the field on the other side of the road. We decided to go to the police then
0: and went down and round Tiny's Drive-In looking for him. I love that they went to Tiny's Drive-In to look for the police. Not the most obvious spot. Then again, maybe the local donut shop was closed. Thank you. I'll be here all week.
1: After the police came, we went back up the road in our car with Gary and the police about a half a mile behind us. I saw it then in a pasture field with its wings out a little, walking towards the car. Then it went up in the air and came at the car. As Gary's car lights came over the rise in the road and the lights shined on it, it disappeared. We went up and down the road looking for it, but didn't see it anymore. We went back down to the drive-in and got in Gary's car and went back up we finally found Millard Halstead and got with him and went down to the powerhouse building. We sat there with our lights out for about 15 or 20 minutes when I heard that squeaking sound like a mouse, only a lot stronger. A shadow went across the building over on the hill across from us. Mary and I saw the red eyes then and told Millard. He shined the lights right on them without being told where they were. We saw dust coming from the ground or somewhere as Miller moved the spotlight around.
0: Is it just me, or does it sound like these folks were smoking some jazz cigarettes? The next day, the local paper, the Point Pleasant Register, ran a story with the headline, Couple see man-sized bird, creature, something. Something which sounds like the author left himself a note to come up with a third noun there and then forgot, and the piece just ran with that title. In the piece, Steve Mallet, one of the foursome of witnesses, described the thing as, quote, about six or seven feet tall, having a wingspan of ten feet, and red eyes about two inches in diameter and six inches apart. The piece went on, quote, The creature was seen standing on three occasions and was described as being extremely fast. It flew about a hundred miles an hour, in flight, but was a clumsy runner. I'm a hard guy to scare, Scarberry said, but last night I was for getting out of there. They did just that, but the thing followed them. We went downtown, turned around, and went back, and there it was, Mallet said. It seemed to be waiting on us. The young men said they saw the creature's eyes, which glowed red only when their light shined on it, and it seemed to want to get away from the lights. Is it just me, or were these two young men quoted in the article, because apparently the women weren't worth quoting, intriguingly specific with details? The eyes were about two inches in diameter and six inches apart? It flew about 100 miles per hour? Okay. Also, I don't mean to nitpick some dudes from 80 years ago, (laughs) but I'm gonna, mostly because they probably won't tweet at me to complain. So which was it? Was it that the creature was following them or waiting on them? Because it can't be both. And was it waiting on them or was it just minding its own business and these looky-loos came back to bother it some more? Anyway, these witnesses would be joined by a chorus of townspeople singing the Mothman's name soon enough. After the first article came out, another local man came forward and was like, uh, me too. Kenneth Duncan claimed that two days before this sighting, he saw a human-like figure fly out of the woods and glide over his head while he was... Digging a grave for his father-in-law. Pause for effect. Duncan said that there were no fewer than four other people with him while he was digging the grave, and none of them saw it. I mean, okay... A third witness, a man named Newell Partridge, then came forward claiming that on the same night as the mallet Scarberry sighting, his German shepherd went missing. He said he was home watching TV when the TV, quote, "...started carrying on something terrible," end quote, behaving as if it were a generator. And so, in response, I guess, he shined his flashlight into the dark field by his house and caught, quote, "...something with eyes like red reflectors." His dog got pissed and ran toward the creature and apparently never returned. And for the record, Newell Partridge will have you know, this all took place 50 minutes before the other people saw the creature in the TNT area. In their police reports the day after their ordeal, the women from the TNT area foursome noted seeing a dead dog in the road just before seeing the creature. The night after the Mallet-Scarberry sightings, a woman named Marcella Bennett reported seeing a terrifying creature out in the same area as the other witnesses. She described it as bigger than a man and gray with, quote, terrible glowing red eyes. Marcella said she was so terrified she fell on her baby whom she'd been carrying. She said the creature slowly unfolded bat-like wings from its back and flew away. With all these witnesses coming forward, Sheriff George Johnson decided prudently to hold a press conference to try to get ahead of the story, if not the moth creature itself. Johnson decided that the creature was most likely a freak shitepoke, which sounds like something an old-timey English gangster would say before shiving someone in an alley. To be clear, the bird's name is not freak shitepoke, but just shitepoke. Freak Shitepoke is my new drag name, by the way. But Johnson's efforts fell flat, mostly because A, the Shitepoke is the smallest heron in the entire Western Hemisphere, and B, Shitepokes can't fly at 100 miles per hour. Sheriff Johnson did not do himself any further favors by dubbing the creature, who was most definitely just a giant small bird, Mothman. It didn't take long for Mothman hysteria to sweep through Point Pleasant, and by Thursday of that week, as many as a thousand people had come out jamming the roads, flashlights ablaze, looking for the creature. The local police and fire department were particularly concerned about the hullabaloo because they estimated that each car had at least one gun in it. What the fuck was going on in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, that everyone needed a gun? Please don't answer that. It's rhetorical, and also I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Moving on! Some reports claim that more than 100 witnesses cited the Mothman, including a prominent banker and a local minister. Despite all these claims, though, the mysterious creature hadn't left a single footprint or scat or any other physical evidence of its existence. Skeptic Brian Dunning did some digging into archives and thinks the number of reported sightings is actually just a measly six. Just goes to show how information can morph over time. It turns out an alleged giant mothman wasn't the only thing flying above the town of Point Pleasant creating a stir. Mere weeks after the initial sightings of the Mothman in her column, Where the Waters Mingle, in the local newspaper, The Athens Messenger, Mary Heyer reported that locals had claimed to see a UFO flying over the area, because of course they did. That report intrigued legendary ufologist John Keel, who would later write, based on his interviews with locals, that black Cadillacs filled with men in black suits We're cruising the hills of West Virginia. John Keel got in touch with Linda Scarberry, one of the four witnesses of the Mothman in the TNT area the previous November, to hold a conversation with her about the experience that night. In an interview for the book Mothman, The Facts Behind the Legend, published in 2020, Linda said,
1: John Keel believed us because he'd taken similar reports of the UFO and Mothman sightings before contact us. He believed every word of what we said. The whole situation in Point Pleasant was centered around the Mothman, but that wasn't the center of the problems here. The Mothman was simply a diversion. It was used as a way to draw people's attention away from what was really going on. It served its purpose, then after a while, it wasn't seen anymore. It was mainly for taking our attention away from what the MIB were doing.
0: Here come the men in black. Incidentally, I read a piece on Grunge that credited Keel with being the first person to coin the term MIB. To be clear, he didn't coin the term Men in Black. That was author Gary Barker. Barker and Keel were apparently bitter rivals because, Lord knows, there's not enough room for two wacko UFO conspiracy theorists. So, what Keel is being credited with is taking the phrase Men in Black and shortening it to MIB. Let's throw this guy a parade. This is all moot, of course, because everyone knows Will Smith made the term MIB famous. Whether he coined it or not, no one walked around saying MIB until Will Smith wrote the theme song for the movie Men in Black. Anyway... According to the Mothman.fandom.com, men in black were frequenting Point Pleasant in the winter of 1966 and 67, poking around, asking questions, and being generally weird. Some people claimed they were threatened by the men in black and told never to speak of the Mothman again. Reporter Mary Heyer claimed they never blinked. Linda Scarberry said, They looked like human beings but their skin was somewhat transparent.
1: You could see the veins in their hands very clearly. Their fingers were longer than a normal person's fingers as well. Daddy shook hands with him, and he said they were awkward and shaking hands. They seemed not to know what to do or how to shake hands. The police were all involved with the Mothman. Their attention wasn't on the MIB, at least it didn't seem to be. I don't know if anyone even mentioned the MIB to the police. Everyone was so afraid of him. Mr. Keel seemed to think that the Mothman was here to distract us from these men. I don't know if they came from outer space or not. They may have come from another country. We were never sure.
0: It's worth noting here that this was all happening during the height of the Cold War and the Great Communism Panic! Also, so far in the story, the police of Point Pleasant, West Virginia can usually be found at Tiny's Drive-In, pointing to the smallest of the area's large birds as suspects in the Mothman sighting, and don't seem to notice groups of weird, non-blinking, veiny dudes who don't dress like anyone else and can't shake hands. Anyway... Linda Scarberry went on to say that John Keel believed the men in black had reporter Mary Heyer killed for knowing too much. Heyer died in 1970 at the age of 54 from a week's long illness. Or that's what they want us to believe. John Keel would go on to write the Mothman prophecies based on his investigation in Point Pleasant. Basically, John Keel claimed that during his investigation, the people of Point Pleasant reported having very strange dreams. But as far as I know, it's not like those dreams were actual prophecies. They were just weird dreams. But Keel, it seems, turned those dreams into prophecies, and Hollywood turned that concept and book into a mishmash of a movie starring Richard Gere and Laura Linney mumbling very close to each other's faces for almost two hours. Who cares? Although I do love Laura Linney. Back in the real world, Linda Scarberry believed the men in black were responsible for one of the worst tragedies the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, ever encountered. The Mothman sightings fizzled out by December of 1967 when the people of Point Pleasant experienced a collective tragedy that most likely had nothing to do with any mythical bat like, moth like creature. On December 15th of that year, a nearby bridge over the Ohio River called the Silver Bridge collapsed, killing 46 people either by drowning or by getting crushed by the falling structure. The official story of what caused the bridge to collapse was your classic boring infrastructure nightmare. Basically, the bridge was built poorly and during a time when cars weighed 1,500 pounds. In 1967, cars weighed closer to 4,000 pounds. So the shoddily built bridge couldn't withstand the added weight and buckled. But Linda Scarberry had another theory about what caused the Silver Bridge to collapse. In the interview she gave for the book on Point Pleasant called Mothman, The Facts Behind the Legend, the author asked her if she thought the Mothman somehow caused the bridge to collapse. I don't
1: think it caused it to fall, nor had anything to do with it. If people saw it when the bridge fell, I would say the MIB had something to do with it, drawing everyone's attention away from whatever they were doing. I do think The MIB had something to do with the collapse of the Silver Bridge. I was down on the riverbank after the bridge fell. There were policemen everywhere, National Guard, emergency squads, cranes, and all kinds of that type of stuff. I didn't see it, but I was told later that someone saw a few of the MIB standing around after the bridge fell.
0: What the men in black were doing and what it had to do with the Mothman, that they chose to let 46 innocent people die in an horrific accident, who knows. But sightings of the mythical Mothman died down after that. So I guess we should assume the men in black killed the Mothman or took it back to their alien planet. Fucking aliens. Am I right? Okay, so let's straighten our skeptic hats and ask ourselves, if the Mothman wasn't an actual cryptid from Mars or wherever, what on earth was it? Remember old Sheriff Johnson with his shite poke theory? Turns out he may not have been too far off base. In November of 1966, Dr. Robert L. Smith, associate professor of wildlife biology at West Virginia University's Division of Forestry, told Sheriff Johnson that he believed the Mothman was, in fact, a large bird on a layover during its flight south for the winter. Based on the various descriptions, Dr. Smith believed that it was most likely a sandhill crane, which admittedly doesn't have the same ring as shitepoke. poke, but what can you do? Smith said despite the Sandhill Crane being very rare to the area and the complete lack of official sightings of it, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that one or two stopped at the nearby wildlife refuge during the time in question. Some people thought maybe the birds had mutated because of toxic waste from the TNT area, which doesn't make sense if the birds weren't common to the area. I may not be a smart man, Jenny, but I know that mutations don't happen instantaneously. A bird wouldn't have landed in the area and mutated into a 10-foot moth thing overnight. Okay, so... Probably not a mutant sandhill crane, but in 2002, Joe Nickel, a professional skeptic at SkepticalEnquirer.com, posited that maybe what people had actually seen back in 1966 were owls. Never mind the fact that the largest owl is only around two feet tall and also doesn't have human arms and legs. But also, professional skeptic? I can get paid to be like, not today, Bob. Oh, wait, I do get paid to say that. God bless this podcast. In a piece on Nerdist.com from 2020, writer Lindsay Romaine suggested that maybe it was a case of mass hysteria, which I'm going to admit right now, I don't really understand. How hundreds of people can experience the same thing that apparently didn't happen is a thing that will never make sense to me. I'm sure there's a million explanations out there about how it works, from psychedelic mold to mind control, and maybe I'll do an episode about it someday, but I have an episode of Love is Blind waiting for me. Which ironically is so popular, one could say it is an example of mass hysteria. But let's think more simply, shall we? Because thinking is hard. Is it possible the Mothman was the work of a prankster? Sure, why not? I'll tell you why not. Because people, generally speaking, are not 10 feet tall with glowing red eyes. Also, they don't fly, especially not at 100 miles an hour. But there were rumors that a local man had dressed in some kind of giant Birdman Halloween costume and just hung out at the TNT area, I guess, waiting for people to drive by so he could jump out and scare them. And then, when they did, he flew off. Somehow. But even if it wasn't some dude hanging around in a costume just for funsies, apparently local construction workers at some point filled sheep plastic with helium and tied red flashlights to it as a prank. This is from professional skeptic Joe Nickel in a piece he wrote in 2002. I don't know if this weird balloon prank started before or after the first few sightings. I also don't know how a group of construction workers managed to fill sheet plastic to make it look like a 10-foot-tall flying man-bird creature. I suppose they're more artistic than we sometimes give them credit for, our construction worker friends. Regardless of who or what was swooping low in the skies of Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the mid-1960s, after the Silver Bridge collapse, like I mentioned earlier, Mothman fervor sort of died down. Turns out when more than four dozen of your neighbors die in a real tragedy, looking for flying cryptids becomes less important. That is until recently and some 400 or more miles away when in 2017, the people of the states bordering Lake Michigan began to report seeing a huge gray or black flying creature that was either a large bird, bat or insect with glowing eyes that were either red, yellow, orange or green, depending on who you asked. Some people reported the creature having human-like arms or legs, and others reported feeling intense fear, which, in my opinion, is the absolute correct emotion to have upon seeing a huge flying bat-bird-insect thing with glowing red-green-orange-yellow eyes. Even if it didn't have the arms and legs of a human, that shit ain't right. Others reported an aura of evil emanating from the creature, which seems unfair considering no one reported being attacked, harassed, or at all bothered by the thing. It's almost like the original report that said the creature was both following and waiting for them. It's like coming across a hibernating bear and screaming and running away and telling everyone you were chased by a rabid bear. Like, come on. Hell, except for the possible dead dog sighted in the original TNT area event, this thing doesn't even seem to go after pets, wild animals, or livestock. For all we know, it's a vegetarian, and, like Greta Garbo, just wants to be alone. You and me both, buddy. According to a piece in Medium, 55 people in Chicago alone reported witnessing the Mothman between 2011 and 2019. So, it seems the Mothman eventually abandoned the people of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, for the more cosmopolitan Midwest. That is, except for one lone sighting in 2016. An anonymous man was driving along Route 2 in Point Pleasant, minding his own thank you very much, When he spotted something big, jumping from tree to tree along the highway, the man did the one thing no one else in all these decades had been able to do. He took a picture. He gave the picture to a local media outlet, but refused to identify himself or go on camera. He said he'd only recently moved to the area and had never even heard the legend of the Mothman. But there it is flying low in a dusk-like sky, a giant moth-like creature with bat-like hooks on the end of its wings, and legs, like human legs. What would be the motivation for anonymously submitting a photo like that? Maybe the town of Point Pleasant was in need of an influx of tourist dollars and hired some dude to cook up this alleged sighting and photo? No offense to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, but... It's a small town with a past that's sketchy, at best. If a giant flying moth thing can be your claim to fame, I say Cheryl Sandberg the shit out of that situation and lean all the way in. They did just that in 2003 when the town erected its signature 12-foot-high stainless steel Mothman sculpture with glowing red eyes the size of footballs, abs that would make Chris Hemsworth abs feel inadequate, long claws, presumably for tearing the flesh no one ever reported it tearing, and standing in an adorable demi-plie. And then, in 2020, a movement was started by some West Virginians to replace all Confederate statues in their state with the statues of the Mothman. Their reasoning? According to one supporter on Twitter, the Mothman is, quote, one, not racist, Two, not explicitly a symbol of white supremacy. Three, not a symbol of slavery, dot, dot, dot. And Reason 1007, Mothman has a thicker ass than any Confederate general. End quote. In a world where so many people dodge blame for the cruel history they've upheld, there's something satisfying about standing an absolute outsider, no matter how weird or hairy. Maybe the Mothman is more than a small-town symbol. Maybe the Mothman is an antidote to unworthy idols of our fascination. Again, look to the evidence. The Mothman has captivated many, given us an urban legend to marvel on, and hasn't heard a fly in the process. Though the jury's still out on what happened to that dog. Sorry, pooch. Whatever he is and wherever he haunts... The Mothman is flying above our bullshit. And for that, he is a beast. And that's a wrap on season one. Thank you so, so much for going down so many bizarre rabbit holes with me. And not to worry, season two is coming up in just a couple weeks. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Andrea Jones Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Pod, And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation.